And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Anderson Cooper is one of the most unusual guys in television news. He hosts the AC360 uh, program on CNN. Uh, He's a correspondent for 60 Minutes. He's an intrepid reporter who always turns up in uh, war zones at the scene of disasters and so on and seems to thrive on that kind of reporting. And yet also very introverted and not someone who is uh, very revealing of himself, at least in his broadcast. But he's also the uh, son of Gloria Vanderbilt, and together they've just uh, come out with a book of conversations between uh, them called The Rainbow Comes and Goes, A Mother and Son on Life, Love, and Loss. That is one of the most revealing and compelling uh, books that uh, I've read in a long time. And I had a chance to sit down with Anderson uh, the other day and ask him to reconcile uh, all of these different aspects of his life. Anderson, one of the things that strikes me about you is you're a very unlikely sort of television personality. I mean, I know you're a journalist, but you're also a personality. But you're very introspective. You you don't really I don't have much personality. You don't inject your personality (laughs) into... uh, And yet, you know, you have this this book that you've written with your mom uh, and your book before this that are very, very revealing, mm-hmm. uh, not just revealing about facts, but revealing about feelings. Right. And I'm trying to reconcile these two, these two yeah. things. I mean, is writing, is writing books like this, is it a way, is it cathartic for you? No. I mean, yeah, it, one, one of the interesting things, I mean, sort of after, particularly after Hurricane Katrina, a lot of people started writing about me saying that I was sort of this emotional anchor I wore my heart on my sleeve which I always found interesting because I always feel like I'm one of the least kind of emotional or emotive people around I sort of you know I'm a wasp I push all my emotions (laughs) deep down inside Um, but I do think there's something about writing which I think if you're going to write you have to be brutally honest and and I do think you know I grew up my dad was a writer my mom has written and I grew up believing writing was sort of the highest thing you could achieve that writing a book would would be like the greatest achievement you could you could accomplish and so I've been the first book I wrote in 2005 um Dispatches from the Edge when I wrote that I mean I'd been writing it in my head for about 10 years so I so that I wrote very quickly and then this also you know this book with my mom it, it just seemed like a very personal thing and if you're going to do that I don't know I think you have to be honest and well this was really an exercise in discovery that you shared with the world yeah, and, and I didn't intend that. I mean, I didn't, frankly, you should, We should explain what it is. Right, yeah. The book is, is called The Rainbow Comes and Goes, and it's basically a conversation between my mom and I, and it's a conversation that began on her 91st birthday uh, after she had gotten sick, and really for the first time, and I started to think about her de- p- potential death and thinking about, you know, that I didn't want there to be anything left unsaid between us before she dies, and I wanted to ask her all the questions that I wish I'd asked my dad before he died when I was 10. And um, so from her 91st birthday to her 92nd birthday, we spent a year having kind of a new sort of conversation, a conversation that would change the way we that I saw her and that she saw me and that um, and frankly, that I saw myself, which I didn't realize going into it. And so that the book it never we didn't intend it to be a book. There's, we we had this conversation actually over email because of my schedule and and there was something about doing it over email that made it easier because it wasn't there was no embarrassment. It was like putting a message in a bottle and throwing it in the ocean. Only you would get a response. And um, so yeah, so that's that's I don't know. I just found it um, if I had to sort of be face to face with my mom asking her some of the questions I asked her. I think I would have done it in a different way or maybe I wouldn't have even asked the questions but there was something about doing it over email that was very kind of freeing and, and I think for her as well you know she she said to me that she enjoyed like hitting the send button and having it go and you can't get it back you know my uh, my mother died uh, a couple of years ago and uh, um, we had kind of a freighted relationship there was a lot left unsaid mm. but she decided that she 
she decided she was going to stop taking her medications. She had four days to live. Uh, and the doctor said, if you, you ought to come if you want to see. So, of course, I was there. Right. And we probably had some of the best conversations right? we, we ever had uh, because the clock was ticking mm-hmm. and there were things that needed to be said. Right. And uh, it, it was interesting. But, but it was nothing, nothing like this. Uh, well, I mean, I think that's so so important. I mean, it's, frankly, it's the reason we ended up deciding, okay, we'll make this will be a book. We're going to put this out there. Is that I really do think. I mean, but one of the things I learned about my mom is that she and I shared the, a similar fantasy, and the fantasy was that, in my case, my fantasy was that my dad had maybe had written me a letter after he died. I used to imagine when I was your a dad. Kid, you were ten years right, old. I was when ten years old. My dad died in 1978 of heart disease, and uh, he was being operated on a bypass surgery, and. I used to have this fantasy from, you know, when I was 11 and 12 and 13 and frankly, you know, even a little bit still to this day of that maybe he wrote me a letter and that letter would show up someday. Maybe when I was a kid, I thought maybe when I turned 18 or 21 or when I get my first job at important points in my life, a letter would show up telling me kind of what to do next and also what he hoped for my life and also telling me about himself and um, you know, of course, there wasn't a letter. And in the course of writing this book, I discovered my mom had the exact same fantasy, which we had never talked about, about her father. Her father died when she was yeah, 15 months old. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. And so it was amazing to me that, I mean, her father died when she was 15 months old. And she used to, she still to this day imagines that there's a letter out there. And so it, to me, what the the thing that I, I found so interesting about doing this book, and then we did a documentary that's on HBO as well, um, is that we all follow these patterns that patterns that our parents followed and that that they followed from their parents and and even without knowing the patterns exist we're sort of repeating the patterns of those who came before us and sometimes those are good patterns to to repeat sometimes they're they're very negative patterns to repeat but I just think I, time and time again in the writing of this book, I discovered that how similar my mom and I are, and I never considered us at all alike. I mean, we're very opposite in a lot of different ways, but we've sort of repeated these similar patterns, um, sometimes to great detriment. But um, it, it, to me, that was there's something very eye-opening and, and thrilling to discover that, because then you once you see the patterns that you're doing and where they come from, that there's sort of some sort of weird biological or historical route to them, you can start to change those patterns. When you, lo- when you lost your dad, uh, did you uh, have conversations then with your mom I, I really about, didn't. about that loss and what it meant? She didn't share her own she, experience with you? She was very able to talk about things, but I, I could not talk about it. I, it was so painful to me. It was so overwhelming to me that, I mean, I was 10 um, I don't know that I really discussed it with anybody. I had a, a nurse who I was very, a, 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 like a nanny who I was uh, was really like my mom in many ways because my mom was working and always traveling and working. Um, but I never really discussed it with my brother. I, I think I talked about it with my my uh, her name was May with uh, mm-hmm. a little bit, but um, but I don't think I I I respond very differently to in those kind of case situations. Whereas a lot of people talk, I don't. I get very quiet, and even now in difficult circumstances, I get very quiet and. I have a big internal sort of internal monologue going on in my head, and I and I work things through in my own head, but I rarely express things out loud. But obviously, uh, you're you're uh, you're nearing fifty. I'm not right. revealing anything. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. a and uh, well, which is the age my dad was when he died. So I always assumed I'd be dead by fifty. Uh, and you're uh, and you're and you're still carrying around this kind of unrequited. Yeah, hope that a letter will arrive. Yeah, I mean, every, honestly, you know, whenever I see a stack of mail, there is a, a fleeting, you know, yeah. fantasy for a second. And my dad wrote a book actually about um, about growing up in Mississippi and about his belief in family, and a lot of it has stories about my brother and I in it. And so that is really like a letter um, that he wrote two years before he died. And um, you know, I, I have the book in my office and. I read it. I reread it once or twice a year, and so that is very much like getting a letter from him. But um, um, and then I recently he did a radio interview to promote that book in 1976, and it was a public on public radio, and uh, some organization called Clock Tower Radio. Um, they uh, 
I guess they uh, they find old radio interviews and they kind of restore them and put them online. And so I got an email from them saying that they had restored this interview my dad did. So I heard his voice for the first time since I was 10 years old. And how did that uh, – did you recognize it? Did I didn't. You? I didn't recognize his voice at all. And it's strange. I sent it to my mom and she did not recognize it huh. at all either. Um you know, I, I, part of it was that he'd sort of been an actor for a while, and I think maybe it, in the interview he was kind of using a kind of an actorly voice a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, but it was uh, it was very strange to hear him, and, and he was talking about me in the radio interview. You know, I, I read this, and I was thinking, my dad died when I was nineteen, and uh, which is quite a while ago now. And I uh, started thinking, could I? Do I remember? Hmm. Do I remember what his voice was like? And um, I can't, I can't exactly conjure it up. So I, this, it'd be great to have a tape. Yeah, I know it's one of those. You know, when somebody dies, I, uh, you know, you you, there are so many little things you know about a person that you're sort of not even aware. You know, the sound they make when they step through the front door, when they come home, the sound they make of putting their keys on a table, the the you Mm -hmm. know the the way their the sound their feet make as they are walking the apartment, they close the door. All these things, you know, the smell um, of a person, all these things we think we're going to always remember. And we sort of tell ourselves, I want to always remember this. But then, I mean, that's the terrible thing about loss, obviously, is that in time, those things just start to slip away. And suddenly, I don't remember the sound my brother made when he came home, although it was very distinctive when I, I mean, I used to remember it. And um, all those little things, I, you know, I, 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 I always wish there was a way to kind of hold on to them. And so, I mean, it's one of the nice things, I think, for people today to have video of, of a loved mm-hmm. one and stuff. You know, we, they're just, we didn't have video cameras when my dad was around. Your, your mom may have been one of the most famous yeah. people of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, starting from when she was a small child and she was the subject, uh, Gloria Vanderbilt, right. the subject of uh, a, a, a famous custody. Right. Uh, yeah, it, when, at the height of the Depression in 1932, um, she was the subject of a custody battle. People referred to it as the trial of the century before the OJ trial became the trial of the century. And she was, I mean, it's so sort of Byzantine and bizarre to even try to figure it out and explain it. But basically she had been, her father had died when she was an infant. Her mother moved to Europe and kind of lived this very glamorous life, um, going out to parties and not really being a parent at all, my mom was raised by a, uh, a nurse she called Dodo and by her mother's mother. Um, and over the years, her mother's mother and her nurse decided that she wasn't being that her mother wasn't fit and that she should be brought back to America and that she should be raised by somebody in the Vanderbilt family because my mom had never met anybody in the Vanderbilt family, didn't know who these people were. But the her grandmother was obsessed with the kind of social status and of the Vanderbilt family. And we should point out for those who, who, who aren't up on their American right. financial and social history that the Vanderbilts were a huge Yeah, beyond, uh, name I mean, and, yeah. Uh, I it, mean there's, we're, we're now in an age where we're used to, like, families with huge wealth. I mean, the Vanderbilts for their time were, uh, it was an unthinkable amount of wealth. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was the, the one in the family who really created the empire, um, when he died, he had more money than the U.S. Treasury, and um, you know he built uh, not only a fortune with steamships, but then with railroads on the East Coast. Um, I, there was some—I don't know—I can't even remember how much money he had, but it was—I mean, it just an ungodly amount of money. Um, I think the equivalent of like two billion dollars today, but but back then there were very few people who now people there are plenty of billionaires around back then in you know the late 1800s there were not many people who had that sort of wealth right. and um so uh my mom anyway the the her her grandmother and her governess teamed up and with her uh her dead father's sister uh, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney created the the Whitney her, fa- Museum. her father died of basically consequences of alcohol. Yeah, cirrhosis of the liver. Yeah, he mm-hmm. drank himself to death. Uh, and his brother had died on the Lusitania when, which was torpedoed by the Germans before World War One, and he gave up his life jacket to a lady and uh, and went down with the ship. Um, but uh, so they basically came up with this scheme, and my mother was taken away from her mother by the courts, and uh, she was the subject of this custody battle. Her aunt, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, got custody of her, and my mother's raised uh, until she was 17 by her aunt. 
And but and always sort of in the public. Right. Uh, yeah. This was a huge. I mean, there were 100 reporters in the courtroom the first day of the, the trial and remained that number all throughout the trial. And it was made global headlines every single day in papers around the country. My uh, my mother's mother was uh, revealed to be a lesbian in the trial, which, you know, at the height of the Depression and was a huge scandal, um, turned much of the country against her, um, helped my mother be taken away from from her own mother. And for the rest of her life, my mom was sort of known as in in you know the tabloids would the refer to her as the poor little girl. rich girl yeah. and you know would sort of follow her throughout her entire childhood when she, you know when she was confirmed in church there were the equivalent of paparazzi following her up to the altar to to take pictures of her confirmation do you uh the reason I, and then you know as was revealed in your conversations she she not only did she live a public life but it was a pretty flamboyant life right. um affairs with some of the right when she was 17 she moved out to hollywood and wanted to date movie stars and she certainly did that i mean it was like errol flynn and uh she had a very serious relationship with howard hughes who she wanted to marry uh like attractive hot howard hughes not desert right not the long fingernail and yeah. toenail and howard <laughs> right. hughes. that would yeah. come um and uh you know all these sort of movie actors and and she ended up in a succession of marriages over the course of her life she was married four times and you know when she was her first marriage was this disastrous marriage to like one of the henchmen for howard hughes and then she married this conductor leopold stakovsky who was Mm -hmm. 43 years her senior he was 63 when she was 21 when they married um then Sidney lumet a great film director and then my dad who uh, was a writer and um so she's yeah she's lived this sort of epic life on a scale that really you know few people have yeah had and how much of that were you aware of when you were a kid not really much i mean i i i knew she you know i would hear she would mention little things like she didn't finish high school and i thought that was weird and i remember watching robin hood with earl flynn one time in it and saying to her oh did you ever know earl flynn and i remember her sort of saying, oh, yes, and then started drifting <laughs> off. But um, I, she never went into details of, you know, oh, yeah, I hooked up with Marlon Brando, and, yeah, I had an affair with Harold Flynn and Frank Sinatra. And, um, Probably not the thing you share with your well, kids. Yeah, at, yeah. You know, although she really shared age. a lot, but, yes, she uh, – <laughs> Um, but I didn't really know. I didn't really know much about the Vanderbilts. That none of that really held much interest or fascination for me. I mean, my dad grew up very poor in Mississippi. That seemed a lot more interesting to me. I wanted to be on a farm. I loved that idea. I knew. And you, 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 you speak about not wa- being relieved that your name wasn't Vanderbilt. Oh my God! Th- yeah, totally. I mean, there comes with such baggage, and you walk into a room, people have expectations about what you're like or assumptions. Want to about, say what kind of tip you leave? Yes. Well, I'm a good tipper <laughs> as a Cooper, thankfully. But, uh, but yeah, about what kind of a person you're going to be and, and what you kind of a life. And I, it's one of the reasons I wanted to make this documentary because the life my mom has led, you know, while I've been alive is so completely different and, and kind of an, antithetical to what probably many people believe her life is. I mean, she has been working as an artist for, you know, really my entire life. It's what she does every single day. And, you know, she lives this life sort of that's, you know, I think probably people imagine her as like a lady who lunches and goes out to society balls. And, you know, in my lifetime, she hasn't done that. And so um, I, she's a far more interesting person. And, and I think that's what the, the documentary reveals. You uh, and what was what was your home like? Did what? Uh, it was interesting. I mean, you know, we would. My mom um, is never satisfied and never content, and that's one of the things she and I share that we both have this drive. And part of that drive is, while she, for much of her life, wanted to have a, a house with a white picket fence and a family and children, uh, that drive uh, makes it impossible for her to to find that uh, fulfilling or find it enough. So every time she would have that, she would blow it up uh we would move every four years because she would she just can't uh it's just her surroundings are so important to her that she's constantly needing to change them and it's like living in a caravan um but the house who would pass through the caravan there were a lot of really interesting people i mean that's what made it kind of compelling so it sort of didn't matter for me, it didn't matter, like, oh, we're moving again. It, this seems normal. But, you know, you'd have Truman Capote over the house a lot um, before he sort of betrayed my mom, and then she stopped talking to him. And um, in a sort of a famous uh, article he wrote, uh, Charlie Chaplin came to the house. There's a photograph the New York, of me in the New York Times when I was five or six welcoming him back to America because he was in exile for most of his, 
his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was it was a lot of theater directors and writers and actors and producers and just people involved in the arts. And my parents, um, you know, kind of had this amazing circle of friends and Charles Adams, the famous cartoonist, you know, the Adams family right. and, 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 and Al Hirschfeld, the cartoonist for yeah. the New York, uh, for New York times. And we were, my brother and I were expected to not, you know, we weren't in our rooms watching television. We were expected to be at the dinner table with them, conversing with them. So we would be expected when Charlie Chaplin came, you know, we had watched a lot of his movies in advance so we would know who he was and um we were expected to make conversation about what we were reading or what you know about and ask questions and there was never a kids table we were always that, sort of that sounds both uh exhilarating and kind of frightening not really it was just seemed normal i mean you know when you grow up in a forest you think everybody grows up in a forest so to me this just seemed completely normal i remember going over occasionally to like some parent, you know, my parents' friends' houses and for, you know, a Thanksgiving meal or something. And sometimes they'd have a kid's table and I'd be like, what? <laughs> I'm not sitting at the kid's table. And we wouldn't, we would generally, my mom, usually my parents would check in advance to make sure that there wasn't a kid's table that we were going to be seated with everybody else because they just thought it was so weird that we wouldn't come along with them and we wouldn't be. And, and so to me, it seemed very normal. I didn't, in fact, what seemed abnormal was going to like kids parties and I had no interest in hanging out with kids really until yeah really never and did you no did, I mean did you I have really friends didn't. when you were growing yeah up? I mean I, I had friends but um but I mean I had one or two probably very close friends but uh, you know I go for trick-or-treating with them and stuff like that but they were also you know when they were in our house they were also seated at the grown-ups table and um you know when I think it just did you go trick or treating dressed as Charlie Chaplin? Uh, I did one year. Based on your, based on your, my research, your, your yes. visible. Well, uh, unfortunately, when I met him, he looked nothing like I expected. <laughs> he was not the little tramp. So um, he was by then, you know, probably in his eighties. So yes, I, I was kind of disappointed that I was like, "That's him," um, but uh, <laughs> he didn't come in with a bowler and a no, drink. no. So we're going to take a quick uh, break for a message from our sponsor, Stamps dot com, and we'll be right back with Anderson Cooper. Uh, amid all of this um, s- stimulation was a sadness. You mentioned losing your dad unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, and you also you also lost your brother. Right. Um, and and in a way that's almost unimaginable when you think about it from your mom's perspective. What what happened? Yeah, I mean, particularly for my mom. I mean, my brother, um, my dad died in 1978 when I was 10. And then, and it was pretty unexpected, as certainly to me at 10 years old. Um, and my brother killed himself in 1988, um, 10 years later, when he was 23 and I was 21. Uh, and he killed himself in front of my mom. And he jumped off the balcony of our apartment. Um, and it was... You weren't there at the time. I wasn't. I was working, actually, in Washington for the summer. I was um, doing an internship. And it, you know, it it was uh, incomprehensible to me. I mean, it was unthinkable. I, I, my brother had had, in the months before, I mean, he'd shown some signs of probably depression. Um, he seemed to suddenly be kind of scared or not himself. His thoughts sometimes seemed to race. Um, and he'd started seeing a therapist, but, and later on I, I met with the therapist and talked to him and it turns out my brother hadn't really confided in him anything and hadn't really discussed a lot of the issues that, that he, he should have. Um, and I don't think he really confided in anybody, uh, cause I've talked to all my brother's friends about this. And, um, and so, you know, that was, it was completely, to me, it, it, I mean, it was just so unthinkable. And to this day, it's sort of, it's you were unthinkable. Close? You know, I never know how to answer that question. I, I, I use. I would have before he died. I would have said, "Yeah, we were close." But you know, when somebody kills himself and you don't really have a sense of why or you don't know, it makes you question. Well, were we really close? I, I think I always imagined that um, we weren't close in that we didn't really discuss things and share things. Um, you know, there were one or two times I remember my brother bringing up, uh, we write about this in the book, uh, my mom drank a lot when I was growing up, um, and it was a huge issue for, for me and for my brother, 
And it was never discussed in my house. My brother actually brought it up to me once when we were in high school. And it was so shocking to me that I, I couldn't even talk about it. I couldn't even acknowledge – I couldn't have a conversation with him about it. So there was, I realized we weren't that close in, in terms of discussing things. And, but I sort of always imagined that we would become close one day when we were adults and kind of beyond you know, the, the childhood concerns. And we'd made lives for ourselves and kind of establish a beachhead – in our own lives. And then we would sort of, you know, I would be uncle to his children and things like that. And, and so I, you know, I, I'm left wondering how close we, were we really? Mm-hmm. You, uh, this is something that we share. My dad committed suicide right. when I was a kid and I had the same, we were very close. Now, it was different. He was my father and he right. didn't want to share his burdens with me. Well, I but remember, was, I remember I read your book and, and, there was a time when he sort of intimated that he was having financial pressure. Right. And that was really the first time. And that was shocking to me right. because for him to share that was – but it didn't translate into a sense of depression or desperation mm-hmm. uh, on his part. But after he died, I, like you, uh, was left wondering um, you know, why I didn't see it, mm-hmm. why he didn't share anything with me. Uh, and it turns out not he didn't share anything with, with anyone. Yeah. And, Which uh, is very, I mean, it, it's one of, you know, it's very common, I think, yes. for for people, uh, for a particular type of person. And, I mean, I realized, for me, it was a wake-up call, my brother's death, because I realized, well, he and I are very much like that. I don't share it with anybody. And, you know, I realized I have to, this strategy that we have both been using, this is not a winning strategy. And I need to uh, refigure and, and kind of reconfigure how I deal with stuff. And... And I think it's... And did you? Yeah, I did. And and I think it's the difference between my brother and I. I mean, that was one of the things I... That was important to me, particularly in the wake of his death, was was literally writing down the differences between us. Like, why am I going to survive and when he didn't? Because I became kind of really fast... Not fascinated, but concerned about that and, worried, and, and interested in that whole notion of, well, how can two people who grow up in the same household and the same... With all the same uh, forces at work one survive and and one not survive and the other survive. And so, you know, I I realized that he and I were different in that um, I have always, not only have I had this drive, the same drive that my mom has from as long as I can remember, but I also have a um, sort of an organizational ability and a, uh, it's not just an unfocused drive, I'm very determined. And so I set about, like cor- a course of study. So from the time my dad died, I dis- I set about a course of study on survival. And I started, for me, the first thing was I got to, uh, I got to get a job. I got to start earning money because this ship is sinking and I want to be, I want to remain afloat. So, and I want to be able to provide for my family if... And so you started that, thinking that immediately when yeah, you were 10 years old. when I was 10, yeah. And so yeah. when I was 11... I, I, I had the same, you know, when my father died, the, the, the biggest thing I remember is thinking, my childhood's over, mm. my, and now I'm on my own. And, right, yeah. You know, my mother was still alive, but he was the guy for me, and, I, and now he wasn't there, right. and I had a for myself so but I was 19 you were just 10 yeah yeah I mean I didn't really know my mom I mean she was this distant sort of figure much like her mother had been to her I mean not to the same extent because my mom was working and, and was there and was present but um but I didn't really know her. my dad was much more the parent and so when with that gone you know there's a writer named Mary Gordon who my mom quotes in in the book mm-hmm. which and she wrote and she was writing about girls but i think it's true about boys as well a fatherless girl thinks all things possible and nothing safe and i think that's really true at least it certainly was for me nothing ever felt safe after that so i realized i need to sort of try to create my own safety and so um, yeah, I got a job as a child model because there's not much 11-year-olds can do to actually bring in real money. And um, I, you know, was making $75 an hour. I would call up every it's day. pretty good money. Yeah, uh, every day. I, I, I got a job at the New York Public Library when I was uh-huh. 13 or 14, uh-huh. and I thought, and they were paying me $3 an hour, and right. I thought I had broken in, broken into the bank. Yeah. No, I mean, I was nothing if not determined. You know, every day after school, I would call the, I worked for a Ford model agency. I would call up the agency get told where there were what auditions to go on i would go after school by myself to an audition and i would book jobs and uh i did a lot of work for calvin klein and ralph lauren actually i used to literally be a fittings model for ralph lauren and he and his brother 
would like sit there and like put the clothes on me and like measure them and cut them and stuff. This um, is this is an unusual schoolboy job. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, there's not <laughs> much. You know, you, thankfully they're child labor laws. There's not much you, you else you can do. And um, and then I started taking survival courses in the wilderness because I was like, okay, I need to. You know, I need to toughen up. I need to figure out. I wouldn't need to know how to like to survive literally. And so I would. There's a group called the National Outdoor Leadership School, much like Outward Bound. And I would. I did a like month long course in the the my in the Wind River Range in Wyoming. I did a month long um, sea kayaking course in Mexico. And um, so the revenants was really your life story. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. But one thing that you talk about is um, you mentioned that your your mother's mother was. Uh, it turned out she was lesbian mm-hmm. um and you talk about your own coming out uh, right. uh, and uh, the fact that your mother had at one point said if she learned that one of her boys was gay that she would have felt she failed as a parent yeah and, yeah yeah and which i never i don't actually even remember her saying that um but but when i told her that i was gay in college uh she felt terrible cuz she remembered saying that at some point um, and the moment, the thing I had actually remembered her saying when I was around 11 was uh, about a friend of hers named Jose Quintero, who's a famous mm-hmm, uh, Broadway sure. theater director, did a lot of Eugene O'Neill plays. He and his partner Nick were coming over for dinner, as they often did. And I remember asking her, well, like, why are you seating them like you're seating them? And she said, well, they're like a married couple. They're a married couple. Which, you know, in 1979, most of America didn't view a gay couple as a married couple. But my mom did. And that always stuck in my mind. So I knew even then, because I knew I was gay, that certainly, you know, by 11, I probably knew when I was six or seven. Um you know, I knew that she would be okay with it ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, yeah. That that was the odd thing about it is that this was very much in her social set. There there wasn't this stigma, right? There, I mean, we had there were gay people everywhere in our. I mean, all over our house, and and um, it was very normal. In you know, for me growing up, to I mean, my, a friend of a friend of my mom's took me to go see. Uh, a, 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 um, he's actually a great uh, photographer, took me to go see uh, Richard Gere in Bent on Broadway when I was probably 11 or 12. And Bent is, a, a, it's a play about uh, gay people during the, the in Nazi Germany and a, a gay couple in a, a concentration camp. And the fr- in the first scene, there's a naked guy on stage. And I recently saw a new production of it in LA. And I was I was stunned that like, I saw this when I was 11 years old. Yeah, I mean, it's not, not the kind of thing. I was probably the only, see, not the Knicks or the Rangers. No, this is what you yes. were doing. And I was probably the only kid in the audience. And I was brought by a gay couple who was friends with my mom. My mom, my my parent didn't even accompany me to the thing. She was like, "Oh yeah, of course, you should go see Bent." Yeah, sure. How did you? Uh, how did you say you've always had that drive? When did you realize that you want to be a journalist? Um, not uh, not until I actually started working as a reporter. I mean, I. I um, I, I mean, in, how did that happen? Well, I was interested in I'd, – I'd grown up watching a lot of TV news. I mean, I grew up watching TV. I, I made a schedule in fourth grade that I found a couple of years ago of my TV watching from the moment I got home to the moment I went to sleep. And it was extensive, everything – you know, starting with McGilla Gorilla and then the 4.30 movie and then news. And um, But we used to watch 60 Minutes. Were you afraid you'd miss something if you yes, didn't write it I down? Yes, I did. I was very organized. <laughs> um, and um, – so I, I'd watched a lot of TV news, and I was always really particularly interested in combat reporting. I remember looking at old, like, Bob Simon reports and, you know, Walter Cronkite, of course, mm-hmm. and I was a big CBS news guy. And so that was always in the back of my mind. I was really interested in, in military history and insurgencies in particular as I got older, and, and, and the Vietnam War I found really interesting, and the experiences of Vietnam War correspondence I read a lot. So when I was in college, I... I did an internship, uh, internship at the CIA, um, and I realized that's not – this doesn't make any sense for me uh, for a variety of, of, of reasons, but uh, one of which was I was gay and couldn't be gay. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, all the stuff that I'm interested in, you know, insurgencies and combat and international relations and television, you know, I, ma- I literally made a list – it wasn't even my senior year because my brother had died right before my senior year. So when I graduated, I hadn't applied to any jobs. And I took a year off and I traveled around Southeast Asia by myself and with a, a partner of mine. And um, and so then I was at loose ends and I made a list of all the things I wanted from a job and wanted from a life. And one of them was not to be in a cubicle when I was 60 in a gray suit. And 
being a war correspondent kind of fit the bill. So I, I couldn't get an entry-level job at ABC or CBS, which I applied to. So I had a friend make a fake press pass for me, and I, I borrowed a camera, and um, I just decided, okay, I'll just start going to wars. And I won't – maybe I will, I'll have less competition if I go to really dangerous places and I'll go to sort of countries that aren't necessarily in the headlines, and we'll see what happens. No element of fear about that? Yeah, I wasn't too afraid initially because I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know how much I didn't know. So I snuck into Burma. I hooked up with some students fighting the Burmese government. And that was interesting. It wasn't you know, a, a, such an active combat zone that, that it was terrifying. It was more kind of interesting. And um, I shot a story. And as soon as I shot that story, I, I knew this is, this is amazing. I mean, I get to ask people questions and I'm in this really interesting locale. And you know, this is life and death. I mean, this is not a story. This is really happening. And then I, I ended up in Somalia in 92 in August, I think it was, in a town called Baidoa. Um, and it was the early days of the famine there. And But it was before the U.S. really got involved and before that whole operation turned into, you know, Black Hawk Down and all that. Um, and that was incredible. I mean, that was just... You know, I was in this town by Doha. There were about 100 people dying every day in the town. There were probably about 1,000 people dying in Somalia every day at that time. Um, and there was just no, you know, I arrived. I got there. I had a backpack of full of videotape and batteries and some cashew nuts. And I think I only spent... And still with your fake press pass? Yeah, but but nobody checks. I mean, it got me on a, on a flight, like a relief flight, like a, a, on a C-130. It allowed me to like a, a seat. And they were dropping off food. And um, then I just got off. And then some kids with automatic weapons approached me at the airfield. And I hired them because they had a vehicle. And they, I, they gave me a, made me an offer I couldn't refuse, which was my sense was I had to hire them or, you know, I was worried they would shoot me. And yeah, then it I, seems, I, seems like a quick negotiation. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was pretty simple. <laughs> uh, and I ended up, I mean, I didn't know what to do, but I was like, well, I guess I should go to a hospital because that's probably where people, you know, people can make it to a hospital. I went to a hospital. I ended up in the surgical theater with uh, a team of American doctors and EMTs who were amputating legs and without any, you know, they had very little electricity and I shot a story about them and then I wandered down to some burial grounds and found a family whose son died while I was there and they buried him and you know that's and where did these stories go I I had worked briefly for about six months as a fact checker this thing called channel one news which was a a show started by this guy Chris Whittle and was seen in in classrooms around the country it was they gave a, a free tv for every classroom a satellite dish and they would send them this program for free it was a 12 minute daily newscast and i had two minutes of commercials which paid for the whole thing and made the whittle i guess a lot of money um because it was it was about half the kids in america watched it and so it was the first time channel one had ever done actual like field reporting before that it had been sort of people in a studio just kind of you know chatting um but all of a sudden you know I was giving them stuff for virtually nothing. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal. It was a great deal for them and for me. I mean, it was incredible. And and I ended up doing that for the next two and a half years, and then ABC News hired me. We're going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back with Anderson Cooper. We, uh, When I think of, uh, of, of you watching you over the years, uh, you always seem very alive in these very chaotic situations we talked before right. and about Katrina uh, and obviously these war uh, torn places terrorism right. when terrorism strikes and and so on but you have this other gig right where you're where you're in a suit in a studio and you're often interviewing uh, people how how does that sit with you uh, it's, or do you get restless? Are you like yeah, your mother? Do you I feel do. like you need to move? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm always looking in the paper at like the small little articles are like, oh, there was a bomb blast in Kabul today. Those are the things that or, you know, what's happening in, in Burma right now. Those are the stories which are the first things that draw my attention every day. And yeah, it's interesting to use the term alive. I, I feel more alive out out in the field um, because it's impossible not to. And because... Um, I, I do think I am, I'm pretty, my, I keep my emotions pretty guarded. And so it's, it takes a lot to kind of overwhelm my, my natural reticence, my natural sort of shyness. And 
there's nothing more overwhelming than being in a place where, you know, you're reporting on something that's not something that occurred a week ago or, you know, yet the day before, but it's something which is occurring all around you. And it's, and it's you know, yeah. it's life and death and it's the molecules of the air are charged in a way. You know, I mean, it's, it's the way you hear, you know, Marines or soldiers speak about combat of, of feeling, you know, regular life seems dull by comparison and I'm not in any way comparing myself to experiences that they have had because I am able to come and go. Um, but you definitely feel more alive than, than you do here. And, you know, when I was doing nothing but that, when I was spending the, for the first three years, I was basically overseas, you know, I would come back for short amounts of time and I would go, go back you know, it was, it became harder and harder to come back because it was like, you don't speak the same language as people here. Um, but I also realized at a certain point, you, you know, to make a life of just doing that, a, it leads to, you know, it often doesn't end well for you, not just the physical danger, but just emotionally and mentally. Well, it's an addiction of a different sort. Yeah. And and if that's all you see, then it changes, you know, you, it's, you, it's hard to, to have a blend back in. It's hard to have a life. And so I realized just for my own sanity and happiness, I needed to do a variety of stuff and anchoring allowed you, you know, gave you, um, power within a company to sort of make your own choices about where you wanted to be and what you what stories you wanted to report on. And so there, there are times when being in a studio is almost as interesting as being out in the field. There's times when, you know, you have the teleprompter is blank and something has just occurred and you're on for eight hours and it's nothing but what the few bits of information that are coming in from different sources and you wouldn't have a... to speak about something for eight hours and and, I, and are there times when you say i can't believe i have to sit here and talk to this jackass uh there are times yes <laughs> there's plenty of times um you know i mean there's there's nights where uh, it will go by and then the next day i can barely remember what i was reporting on i mean that and that's just with the sheer volume of work that, right. that we all do in television that's pretty natural i think um but it's uh it's you know i i've come to actually i do enjoy i enjoy learning new stuff every day and so if every night i can learn something new and i can have conversations with really smart people i mean on election nights when we're on for 9 hours <laughs> yes. you know sometimes we're repeating ourselves because people haven't been watching you know consistently for the course of those 9 hours but you know to listen to you talk about your experiences um and and your perception of what's happening now i find really interesting and as long as there's things I can sort of, I want to learn something new every day. And, and as long as I can do that, then, then I'm happy. Well, let me go on record saying I find it gratifying to be listened to. So I appreciate <laughs> okay. that. Uh, but uh, let's talk a little bit about this campaign because you've spent a lot of time on a debate stage. Right. You've, you've, Which I, lo- I love the debate stage, I got to say. Yeah. Well, that has that same kind. There is a sort of... Um, it's a charged atmosphere. Yeah, it is. It's totally unlike... Charged. Oh, it's incredible because... I mean, it's charged in a completely different, obviously, way than combat. But it is, it's, I mean, I've talked about it as three-dimensional chess or like a civil knife fight, like a polite, polite, you know, because it's all these people who are, you know, alpha, I mean, I guess the term is, you know, I mean, they're obviously, yeah, yeah, they're highly, highly charged people, you know, highly motivated, top of their class, you know, people, people, you know, spend, they've spent years doing this and, you know, they've got a lot of information. And so it's this fascinating fight that's going on. Um, that's not a a physical fight. Well, you do a good job. It seems to me, this may be, uh, because of your reticence, because, but you, you, you can, you seem to be able to drive a conversation without injecting your own ego into it. I'm not interested in, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't really – I'm not concerned about coming off as – I don't need to be the smart person in the room. I, I'm, I'm happy to to accept that there's a lot of smarter people in the room and my job is more – I mean I view my job is to facilitate – I mean whether it's on election night is, is to facilitate a conversation and just to step back. I don't need to make salient points because frankly, you know, what I – I don't – I'm not all that – I don't think what I have to say is particularly interesting compared to what you have to say on, on, a, on a given topic. But – during a debate, um, yeah, I think if the if the story the next day is about the moderator, then I think that's not a good sign. I think you, I don't want to be the story on a in a debate. I want the candidates to be the story. I want to facilitate a really f- 
interesting, sharp, whether it's confrontation or just discussion of ideas, whatever it may be, but I don't want to be the story. Would you like these Trump Clinton debates? Uh, I would love to be the to, most yes. anticipated. Would you like to moderate one of those? I would debates? love to. I would, look, uh, that would be fascinating. Okay, so it would the, just be the debate commission is listening. We're taking applications <laughs> I, now. And but I, but I think would the, like to be. yes. But I think the important thing is to not. I mean, again, that in in that debate in particular, um, it's more important than ever. And I think the, usually the people they pick for those or do a really good job of you know of of stepping back from it and you know look i remember that what was the cnbc debate you know in uh, in the republican debate this this you know i just thought that was a disaster on so many levels but just a disaster producing and uh, of the whole thing i mean sort of asking like snide questions i don't get that i mean that's more about the person asking the question to try to come off looking a certain way and then to not have the information at their fingertips and then to not have somebody in their ear who can at least help them bail themselves out when they've... It was kind of a train wreck. Yeah, and if you're going to confront somebody at a debate with facts, you better have the facts either, you know, written out in front of you or in your head. And and it's a, you know, I mean... That was uh, that was shocking to me. Yeah. Do you uh, talk talk to me about the two principals who were left? We've gone through a whole array of candidates now. You've interviewed both of them probably dozens of times by now, uh, yeah. both Clinton and Trump. You you're one of the few uh, journalists who's Clinton been, not not as much. I mean, been I, able to persuade Donald Trump to spend some time with you. you know? I, I've, I've <laughs> you know it's interesting. I, I interviewed him a bunch early on, and we had some pretty sort of contentious back and forth interviews. Uh, and then I, I didn't interview him for a long time, and I don't know if he if that was conscious on his part. I don't know. If, I'm not sure if I'd fallen, you know, if I'd crossed some uh, threshold that he didn't like. Um, and then it seemed to come back, and we've done a lot subsequently. And look, I, I don't believe in. Um, I take seriously anybody who has thrown their hat in the ring and is going through the the you know the. Um, the crucible of this. I mean, this is... What are the challenges of interviewing a Donald Trump? Well, I mean, the challenges are... I mean, he's a fascinating person to interview because, first of all, he's willing to sit down for an interview. I mean, getting Hillary Clinton has been very difficult Mm -hmm. for me. Um, That's been one of the keys to his success. He's made himself always available to, absolutely yeah absolutely and, and home shopping network wants you i mean he's, he's there you know hillary clinton ted cruz you know we would put out a lot of requests all the time and rarely you know it's only recently that i've started to interview hillary clinton a little bit and um and that i think she's starting to you know i think she called in to a show on cnn uh, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago uh, i think i interviewed her on a call in i mean that that's that was the first time i'd seen her do that and i think you know Especially now that she's going up against Donald Trump, I think she's going to have to start doing that because, you know, it's not that all we want to do is put Donald Trump on. We, I would like to have had Ted Cruz on a lot. You know, I would like to have had Jim. Although this has been a big bone of contention. Right. There's no doubt that Donald Trump, as he would be the first to say, has been good for television, good for, oh, good for yes. CNN, good for sure, Fox, good absolutely. for MSNBC. Look, people want to for- watch him and people, are, people watch him. And He's good TV. He is good TV, yeah, without a doubt. But, you know, a, a lot of these people can be good TV. Uh, they just don't want to subject themselves. I mean, Jeb Bush, I never talked to him until we did a town hall, and that was the first and last time. That was, it was you know, I think it was right before he, he left the race. And so, um, I, I don't know. I, I think, but I, in terms of, of an interview, Donald Trump is fascinating because he actually does answer questions. Now, what you can quibble with, how he answers the question, what his base of knowledge is, you know, the details. he, Or whether or what like, he said today is consistent with what he said the last time right, you, of course. You, you saw him. Absolutely, right. I, there's all those things, but he does answer. And the first time I saw him talk while when, when after he had announced, I remember saying, I think we had, I remember being impressed and saying he does not sound like any other politician. And I, I mean, I get some of that. I get that appeal. I get that appeal of like, He's, you know, uh, we did a town hall, I don't know, uh, I can't even remember where it was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Ted Cruz had, just, had been on first, and then Donald Trump came out, and it's like, I, you know, I listened to what Ted Cruz was saying, and God, what about those five-second pauses? I mean, that's just so phony. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, probably a lot of people listening to Ted Cruz had that exact same thought. There's very few politicians who would come forward and just say that right off Do the top. Do you have that thought when you're interviewing politics? Did you ever say, come on, just loosen up and 
give a real answer? Yeah. To? Yes. I mean, I think I think there's nothing worse than um, than somebody who's not honest, and there's nothing in, in the political sphere and in, in, in any realm. And I think that audiences are so smart and especially today more than ever before more than any other generation and there's something about television you're you know you're transmitting yourself through a little piece of glass and it is a lie detect it detects truth and people know sitting at home that guy's avoiding the question that guy's not answering the question that person that woman is not answering the question that person is you know saying something that they've i mean people know and i think it's um I, I certainly have those thoughts all the time during interviews. And it, so you, you raise an interesting point about television uh, and how, how uh, you know, I once said presidential elections are MRIs for the soul, but television is sort of the lens of that mm. MRI in many ways. Uh, Hillary Clinton has this trust and honesty thing that right. comes up in polling. Do you think part of that is she, she's terribly reserved sometimes right. in these uh, interviews? Do you think that's part of that? Um, well, I, I, I come back to the term authenticity, which is kind of an overused term in politics, but certainly in the world of television. And, and um, I, I do think there is a, a, a practiced quality to Hillary Clinton in what she says often. And I think it's the times when she has broken through that. And look, it's not an easy thing to do for some people and from everybody who knows her. And I don't I don't know her personally. Um, I've never seen her other than the t- any time I've been sitting across from her on a stage with her. Um is, uh, you know, she that is her go-to response. Her go-to response is to be a policy wonk and and to kind of go with facts and figures. The times she's been able it, to that go-to response is a, a, it's it's kind of a refuge for her. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. And for someone who's been in the public eye that long, I look. I get that. I know. I mean, it's not a it's not an easy thing, particularly if it doesn't come naturally to you. And if you know you're, you've been in this kind of very difficult arena, but I do think um, I do think part of that problem is in the responses sometimes do seem inauthentic or they just seem like I've heard this before. And, you know, I like to read everything a person has said within, you know, the last, certainly the last month of doing an interview with them, ideally before longer than that. And if you do that, then you know for a fact when you're talking to them, like, okay, this is, she said this to Andrea Mitchell four days ago, or this is what she said to her. She said this, oh, I remember this phrase. She said this to Rachel Maddow, Rachel, Rachel Maddow mm-hmm. six weeks ago, because I've just read all the transcripts. Yeah. And so Donald Trump does say stuff that is clearly, he for, answers questions. For better and worse. Yes, yeah. he, he answers questions he clearly shouldn't. Um, and he's also highly, um, he, his antenna, I think to me, what's interesting about talking to him is you can see the antenna work. I mean, his antenna are finely tuned, not only to his audience, to, to kind of a zeitgeist, but, um, he reads cues, unspoken cues and spoken cues really like in the Chris Matthews interview. I mean, I've watched that now a couple mm-hmm. of times where he, where, where he got Donald Trump to statement. say the abortion, right. Had, had, had Chris Matthews said to Donald Trump, um, you know, with, uh, if a woman has an abortion, do you think the doctor should be punished or do you think the woman should be punished? Donald Trump would have instantly gone for doctor to be punished. He would have, he just, even though he hadn't clearly hadn't really thought out that issue, he would have known because, okay, there's two choices here. Chris Matthews giving me two choices. I know the doctor one is the better choice, but Chris Matthews, you know, probably wisely in in terms from Chris Matthews' perspective, given I I assume with what he was hoping Donald Trump would say, um, you know, Chris Matthews didn't give him the doctor option. Chris Matthews gave him the woman option. And because it was an issue Donald Trump had not, I, I think, had not really thought through, um, he, he just kind of latched onto that during the interview. And I, to me, uh, I think that it, to me that was just a very telling moment. You you said you don't you don't know Hillary Clinton. You don't make a point of socializing with I don't the people know. that you cover. Do you? Is that a conscious? To. thing? Yeah, I don't want to. I mean, first of all, I don't socialize really with anyone because I I just <laughs> I, I'm just to me it's uh, uh, I'm a I'm sort of an, I'm I'm an introvert and so it's painful. To, I mean, not painful, but it's uh, it's a big expenditure of energy for me to like go to a dinner party um, because I am very focused on reading cues and like, is the conversation lagging? Is this person having a bad time? Have they had a bad day? That's what I spend my time thinking about. And I end up, I want to sort of, uh, it's just, it's too exhausting. I mean, not exhausting because, <laughs> you know, coal mining is exhausting, but no, it's just. It's emotionally draining. Yeah, it's just draining. Yeah. And um, so it's not, nat- I mean, I'm not, 
as you said early on, I'm not a natural like television extrovert. I mean, I, I it's it's a strange thing that I have this job because for me, I, this wasn't the plan. I mean, I didn't have a plan, but it's just weird that I'm in this position. I mean, I love it. I, I'm thankful. I'm incredibly you know blessed. Um, but it's not. Uh, it's not. I didn't. I wasn't born thinking I got to be on TV every single day because I love. Sing- I don't watch myself on TV. I don't. I think about myself on TV. I pretend I'm not on TV, and I'm much happier that way. So going to a social function like, and you don't have this hankering to hang with no, Hillary Clinton no. or Donald Trump. I think it's or- weird. I think it's inappropriate. Not. I mean, I just think it's. I don't. I think it. It doesn't help me to to know them as. On a personal level, I don't want to be friends with any of these people, and not because I have anything against any of them, but I just, it's just not my job. My job is not to be, fr- my job is to ask them questions. And it's easier for me to ask tougher questions or be tough to somebody in a debate if I don't have some, if I know, if I don't know they have a, a sick child at home or they, you know, they lost their dad when they were a kid or, I mean, it just, mm-hmm. I, I don't like to chat with people. I'm about to do an interview too much because I don't want to, particularly if it's going to be a contentious interview, because it just doesn't come naturally to me. So you you talk about this drive that you have that you got from your mother, and you talk about how you ended up in TV and how odd it is for a guy of your uh, temperament right. to be a TV star. Uh, where does this drive lead you next? And I, I we're sitting here in your office at CNN, so I don't want to elicit from you <laughs> a resignation uh-huh. uh, as someone who also works at uh-huh. CNN. I'm not eager to see that. Right. But, um, but you know, know, your name yeah. has been in the news relative to this uh, Kelly Ripa I've heard that. opening. Yeah. And uh, there are, I mean, what are the, what well, are the things, what are the unchecked boxes right. for Anderson Cooper? I, um, I, well, I don't know. I mean, um, I've never had like a five-year plan or anything. I mean, I, I, it's going to sound like I'm evading the question, but you know, to me, might it, be wise to evade. Well, it, no, anyway, but that's... to me, if I can, first of all, I, I don't see leaving CNN. You know, I, I don't. So see if you leaving did something, CNN. it might be an add-on to uh, any anything I would do. Would try to I would try to add something on, like you uh, do which, sixty minutes, sixty minutes, right? Yes. Because I I I genuinely I believe in the mission of CNN. Again, I don't want to sound like a company guy, but um, I, there's a there's I like going to the front lines of places, right. and I like that they so want me to. Something breaks, and you'll go. Right. And, and I love that. I can't love get that. that right. on, on. Yeah, I once called. I was on a vacation in Rwanda, and I saw on television about a malnutrition crisis in Niger. And I called, uh, and I had a bunch of friends with me in Rwanda go, to go see mountain gorillas. And they, my friends, had never been to Africa before. So, and I convinced all these people to come. And I w- it was like two days in the vacation. It was like a week-long vacation. And I saw this report on a malnutrition crisis in Niger. And I called up my executive producer, Charlie Moore, and I said, we should go do this, like, now. I'm, I'm nearby. And he was like, okay. And I went down to my friends. And I said, I'm leaving. I, you know, you'll be fine here. It's no big deal. And, uh, I'm, and I left. And, and do, there's few Do you ever companies... wonder, Anderson, why it's hard to get a group together for vacations, <laughs> right. I mean? Let alone a dinner. But there's few <laughs> companies that would have said... Oh yeah, you yeah. should go to the, well, yeah go to this malnutrition crisis because uh, first of all it turned out I had to fly back to you know you, just because I was near geographically didn't mean I could actually get there without going back to Europe and then flying so you know it cost CNN a lot of money but I like CNN so but I, I you know I like doing stuff new I love working sixty minutes I love the the quality of the the, the broadcast um, you know I did a daytime show for a while that was difficult uh, and it was a learning experience uh, and. I don't know. I, I'd like to just keep learning new skills and, and kind of exercising different muscles. Well, I uh, I enjoy the time that we get to spend yeah, together and looking forward to the next uh, six months. And uh, everyone should read this book, The Rainbow Comes and Goes, because it's, it's an unbelievably uh, interesting and revealing and compelling uh, book. So uh, nice. I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> Anderson Cooper, thanks very much for thanks. being here. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 